Good morning, church. My name is Matt Doan, one of the pastors here at Calvary. It's my joy and privilege to spend a few minutes with you here this morning on this Valentine's Day weekend. Rough weekend, huh? <laughs> okay, I won't bring up Valentine's too much today. Um, but I think we can all agree, hasn't it been a beautiful week? I mean, we had a ton of rain, but over the last couple days, did you get the opportunity to see the mountains that surround Orange County? I mean, just incredible. When I was driving in this morning, the clouds that surrounded the Cleveland National Forest and over Saddleback, I mean, it looked like you could just reach up and, and touch them from where I was. I mean, just like, whoa. God is real. In Romans chapter 1, it says that God reveals himself through creation. And that none of us are without excuse to acknowledge that there is a God because of what we see in the world all around us. But I am so thankful for the grace and the faithfulness, the kindness of God, that not only does he reveal himself through creation snowy mountains, billowing clouds, even the refreshing rain. But he reveals himself especially special through his word. And so this morning, we just want to spend some time opening up the Bible and looking at what God has to reveal about his character, his nature, and how he wants to speak to us. So grab your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 today. There's only 16 chapters in Mark. We are almost there as we complete this year-plus study in the book of Mark. So turn to Mark. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Mark chapter 14. And let me have the honor to read God's word out loud. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1, and I'm simply going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. This is what it says. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and and kill him. This is Jesus they're trying to kill. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table... There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii in the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So as we read this passage from the first century, from Passion Week of Jesus leading to the cross, 
it applies to our lives here in 2019. Yes, are you getting used to saying that yet? 2019, these words matter to us. What we see just overall is this idea of extravagant love. It's Valentine's Day weekend. You see extravagant love towards Jesus and even hints of the extravagant love that Jesus will give towards humanity. I'm using the word extravagant a lot today, if you look at your sermon outline. And I want to make sure we're on the same page for what I mean by this word. How I'm using extravagant is this. It's exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate. It's absurd. The type of love that God has for you and I is extravagant. It's beyond what's appropriate or reasonable. It's even, I would say, absurd. We just read the reckless love of God. God pours out his love onto you and I. I don't know if you caught this in the news, but... uh, There was an absurd Valentine's act that was captured in the news. Kanye West, the celebrity, hired Kenny G, the famous saxophone player, to come in and serenade his wife, Kim Kardashian, with a room full of single-stem roses. Ladies, can you imagine walking into a room? I don't know if you can see this on your screen. It's a little faded. Kenny G playing just for you with a room full of roses. (laughs) Marie, I was totally going to do this, but Kanye Kanye stole my thunder here. (laughs) On a side note, though, when when we talk about celebrities, uh, you can make fun of Kanye or Kim Kardashian, but at least they're still married. Like, pray for celebrities in their marriages, that God would speak to them through that. But that was an extravagant Valentine's Day in the West Kardashian household. We look here in Mark 14, we see an extravagant scene of love. But really, we see more than that. We also see extravagant hatred from the religious leaders. We see this extravagant devotion from this unnamed woman in the city of Bethany. We see extravagant disgust from those that are in the room and watching this woman as she pours out this expensive perfume onto Jesus. And then we see the extravagant good news of Jesus. Let's just walk through each of these categories. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, you see the extravagant hatred of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This is actually the first time that we have a time stamp uh, in the Gospel of Mark. The first 13 chapters, Mark is taking us quickly through the ministry and the life of Jesus. One of his favorite words is immediately or suddenly. As we just speed through different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. And then we land here in chapter 14. And Mark describes that it's two days before Passover. Now, Passover in a Jewish calendar, it's a little confusing how it starts and ends, but probably it was Wednesday night to Thursday night, and the Last Supper was involved in that day. So two days before that would either be Monday or Tuesday of the week that Jesus went to the cross. So Mark is describing that the religious leaders are gathered together and plotting how to capture and kill Jesus two days before Passover. 
But they have a, a little bit of an issue there. And that is, as you look at verse 2, they're worried because they don't want the people to riot if they capture and kill Jesus. You remember there was the triumphal entry of Jesus. And so the people were very much behind Jesus in this part of the week, the final week. So they're worried that they might incite the people if they capture him so publicly before Passover. In Jerusalem in the first century, Jerusalem would swell about three times the amount of people that normally resided there during Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Some estimate there were over 300,000 people crammed in to the old city of Jerusalem during this week. And as a result of so many people, the Roman government got nervous when that many Jewish people gathered together. So they would beef up their security, their surveillance, their oversight of the people. And so the Jewish leaders here, as they think about pursuing Jesus and their hatred, they, they want to be careful with that because they don't want the Romans to get upset and break the kind of bond that these leaders have with the Roman authorities. They're in cahoots together. They don't want to incite the people against them, and so they have a little bit of a dilemma here. We need to get rid of this guy, Jesus. He's, he's causing us a lot of problems, and not just problems. He's actually threatening our very existence. He's challenging our authority, and we hate him for that, and we want him dead. But we have this Passover and all the people, and he was pretty popular a couple days ago. So let's just wait until the week of the Unleavened Bread festival is over, Passover is gone, the people scatter back outside of Jerusalem, and then we can capture Jesus and silence him forever. As you look at verse 1 and 2, you just see the hatred that these religious leaders had for Jesus. And really, through the Gospel of Mark, you see that there's no middle ground when it comes to what you think about Jesus. You either believe that he is God and he is the Messiah, come to redeem his people, or you believe that he's evil and twisted and crazy. But there is really no middle ground in the Gospel of Mark when it comes to how people view Jesus. A couple years ago, Neil Parr and I were on an airplane going to Turkey, and I sat next to a Muslim from Kosovo who sells wedding dresses. He's a really interesting guy. And there's two types of people on an airplane, those who are quiet and those who talk. I happen to be the second. Don't judge me for that, okay? And so I started talking to this Kosovo, Kosovar Muslim. We're having a nice conversation, but it's not turning spiritual, and so... We kind of have a little uh, lull in the conversation. I think, how can I, just in my limited time with this guy, talk to him about Jesus? And so out of my backpack, I pulled my Bible. And I lowered the uh, food tray. And I just placed my Bible on my tray. I didn't say anything, but I just began to read my Bible. And I was praying, God, if you want me to have a spiritual conversation with this wedding dress salesperson from Kosovo, have him ask what I'm reading. Kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch type situation. And sure enough, like a minute later, he goes, is that the Bible? And I go, it is. <laughs> Probably like a little too excited for that. But uh, we begin to have a spiritual conversation. And it was leading in some really interesting places. 
But then ultimately, he said, I believe that Jesus was a good prophet, but he was not the son of God. And we kind of hit a wall right there. If you've ever talked to, to someone who's a, a follower or a Muslim, it's, it's difficult to get past that son of God issue. And that's where it stopped. So he was kind of in the middle, good prophet, but not God. Last weekend, Marie and I were in an Uber. Uber, you know, is a, a taxi service. And, and the driver was from Tel Aviv, Israel. He was an Orthodox Jew. We began having a conversation, and I asked him, well, what do you think of Jesus? And he said, oh, Jesus was a good man, but he wouldn't call him Messiah. And he was in the middle. Both guys, the guy in the airplane, my Uber driver, they're in the middle. Good prophet, good man, not God. But in the Gospel of Mark, really, that's, the middle ground is not an option. Either you believe that he is God because of the authority that he speaks with, the miracles that are attributed to him, or you believe that he's evil and crazy and actually needs to be squashed. And the religious leaders were in that camp. They wanted Jesus killed. But they wanted to wait till it was a little bit more convenient. But something happened, and we read about it in verse 3, that sped up their timeline. Because if you're a studier of the gospel here, you know that Jesus was killed during Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread week. So what sped up the timeline for these religious leaders? Well, it was the incident that happened here in verse 3. As we see the extravagant devotion of this unnamed woman. Now we read in a couple of the other gospels, both in Matthew chapter 26 and John 12, that seem like they're all the same account as what's happening here in Mark 14. We read that the woman in John 12 is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. There's actually four accounts in the Gospels of a woman pouring perfume onto Jesus. Matthew, John, and Mark are probably the same story. The one that's different is in Luke chapter 7, where there's a woman near Galilee that, that cries and anoints Jesus with her tears. So that's probably a separate account, but the other Gospels record this account. So you have Jesus going to the house of Simon the leper. In Bethany, which was about two miles outside of Jerusalem, towards the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel, you know where that kind of area is. Simon the leper is his name. That is not a nickname that you would want. <laughs> Matt the leper. What that meant probably was that he had had leprosy. But Simon most likely had been healed because a leper wouldn't be allowed into the city of Bethany. He would have been put outside the city in a cave or in a camp away from other people because leprosy was highly contagious. They believed and he couldn't be mixing with the general population. So the fact that Simon is in his house when Jesus shows up shows us that he was most likely already healed. He had had leprosy, but now he was clean. But imagine if you knew what you knew in the first century about leprosy, or that's all you knew, and you were invited to Simon's house, wouldn't you have a little bit of hesitancy? Like, can I be certain that his leprosy is healed? <laughs> do, I, do I really want to mix and, and sh shake hands with this guy who probably has scars from his leprosy? Maybe a missing digit or ear or even nose. And so this even shows, one, that Jesus was willing to go to anyone as he enters into Simon the leper's house. 
probably Jesus was, was the one that healed Simon. Maybe, even in Luke 17, talks about the ten lepers who were healed and only one came back. Maybe this is the one that came back. So Jesus is in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem, at Simon the leper's house. Mary is the woman here. And in John 12, it tells us that Lazarus is also at this meal. So I want you to picture this for a minute. The scene, the people that are at this table. You have Jesus. You have a man who had leprosy, who was deemed unclean, but then was healed. You have Mary. Uh, The scriptures here tell us in verse 10 that Judas was there, one of the disciples. The other gospels tell us that all the disciples were there, plural. So you have Jesus, you have the leper, you have Mary, you have the disciples, and you have a guy who John 11 said, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Can you imagine just the small talk that was happening at that table? Hey, Lazarus, what's, what's been happening with you lately? Well, I was in the grave for four days, and <laughs> Jesus raised me up. These are the people that are at this dining room table or reclining at the table. It's kind of a motley crew. You have a healed leper, disciples, guy raised from the dead, his sister. And I love even the glimpse that that gives us of the church. Those that were connected at that dining room table were connected because of Jesus. We, the church, are connected not because we all like the same things or dress the same way or had the same experiences growing up. We are connected here at Calvary as a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church around the person and life of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Look around you for a moment. Maybe a lot of us kind of look the same, but how many of us would choose, and no offense, I love each of you, would choose to hang out together or would even live in the same area that would come across each other? And yet, by God's grace, centered around Jesus, we are together in this church. Only God can do that. One of our missionary partners is Patricia Cardo. Patricia, get this, was born and raised in Venezuela, now serves God in Spain, and her ministry in Spain is to care and share the gospel with Muslim women from the Middle East. (laughs) So a Latin American in Europe serving Muslim refugees. Only God does things like that. And only Jesus could bring together this crew in this room here in Mark chapter 14, verse 3. The woman breaks open an alabaster vial, it says. Alabaster was a white stone, pretty common in Israel from what I have read. It was actually one of the stones that was put into Solomon's temple. So it was known as uh, a beautiful and, and precious stone. The perfume was placed in a jar that looked something like this. And we read here in verse 3 that she broke open the alabaster vial. So if you ever had a piggy bank as a kid and you had to break it open. Now piggy bank, they're so weak. You have to just open the little container. But back in the day, remember, if you wanted your pennies, you had to all in. (laughs) You had to smash that thing. So to open the perfume here, it says that she broke it open. I'm imagining her smashing it open. 
And the pure nard, John 12 tells us, begins to fill the room. And she anoints Jesus' head. She pours out the expensive perfume on to Jesus. We read in verse 5 that this perfume was worth an entire year's wages, which in Orange County standards in 2019 would be $78,000. So she's pouring $78,000, if you will, onto Jesus. This would be her life insurance, her security. You see, she was keeping this perfume not to use for a special occasion for when Kanye West brought Kenny G in. She was waiting or holding this perfume because if she ever needed to resell it, this would give her money that would allow her family to live. And so I want you to picture this expensive perfume as really her life insurance. So she's breaking this open to pour it on Jesus. She's basically communicating my entire life, my entire future, all of my security is in you, Jesus. Could you say that today? Could I say that today? My life, my future, my security, my hopes, they're found in Jesus. She held nothing back. Jesus was her treasure. I think back to um, when I was about 24 years old, and I was an intern here at Calvary Church working with high school students. And I was with Jeff Biddle. Many of you know Jeff. And we were driving on 17th Street. We went down Tustin, turned right on 17th. And Jeff is a counselor by heart. He's actually a counselor now. And I was just pouring out my life to Jeff, going, Jeff, I don't know if I should be a pastor. If I become a full-time pastor, I'm going to have to give up this and this and this. And I just started rattling off things. And we turned right on 17th Street, where the Starbucks is now. I think it was an empty lot back then. And we headed over the overpass, over the 55. You go over the freeway there. Mimi's on your left. You have, was it Zove's? I'm getting hungry. Zove's on your right. <laughs> and Jeff just looked at me and said, it's worth it. It's worth it. I'll never forget. We were in his forerunner driving over the 55. It's worth it. I remember going, I, I agree. Jesus is my treasure. And whatever I give up for God, it's worth it. He is my treasure. John and Julie Clark are missionaries. We've mentioned them several times throughout the last year. They're serving in Mali, Africa. They lived here in Orange County. They had a successful business right across the street from Disneyland. They were doing well, living the Orange County dream. And then God said... Am I your treasure? Are you willing to pour out your life for me? And John and Julie said yes, and today they're serving in Mali, Africa. In fact, John just a few hours ago preached to a room of 60 people made up of Liberians, Malians, people from the United Nations. It's this eclectic group of people that only Jesus could bring together. John's doing that every Sunday. It's beautiful. And I don't know if you remember, but last June, I made a promise to give a pie to John. So watch the screen. If you weren't here, you'll catch the story right now. 
If you saw uh, the Pastor Weekly email that we send out each week, I did a little challenge in the email comparing Nazareth to Nord. I said, if anyone that receives this email has ever been to Nord and can prove it, I will personally deliver a pie to your front door. Now, we sent that email out to about 3,000 people on Thursday morning, and I received one email back. And I want to read you a little bit of this email. The subject, as I opened it up, said, uh, chocolate cream pie. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what it said. This is from a guy named John. It was exciting to hear you mention Nord, California, and comparing it to Nazareth. That was a very good comparison. However, I'm not sure if Nazareth was quite as redneck as Nord. My apologies to Nord. Yes, we've been to Nord. We lived just a stone's throw away from Nord for three years when we lived in the city of Chico. And then he quotes Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. One needs to be careful when making promises. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything that he said. (laughs) So John is holding me accountable for my promise of the email that I would deliver a pie to him. Then he goes on, it's been a long time since a Marie Callender's pie has danced across my taste buds. My mouth is really watering thinking about it. I was so excited to learn of your commitment to hand deliver a pie of your choice to anyone who had ever been to Nord. Signed, John and Julie Clark, Molly, Africa. It's 10 o'clock. Who could that be this time of night? Go answer the door. It's your turn. It's my turn? Let's go together. Who could it be? I don't know. Julie! John Clark! It's Matt Doan! Calvary Church, Santa Ana! I just got on an airplane from Santa Ana. Took me 18 hours to get here. But I'm delivering my pie. Wow. Chocolate cream awesome. pie. Wow. They've proven they went to North California. And here's your pie. Yeah. You are 18 years, 18 hours later. <laughs> you are a man of your word, Matt We got that pie. Thanks to Trevor Barons and I went over there last month, so the Clarks had their pie. <laughs> but they've given their 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 treasure is focused not on anything but Jesus. And be, Trevor and I being there, we got to see that firsthand. And the joy that they have is incredible. We're going to tell more of their story in a couple weeks here on a Sunday. Just tease you with that. But making Jesus your treasure like this woman in Mark 14, 3, like the Clarks, it's always worth it. And you would think that the people that were at the dinner room table that night, as they saw the woman pour this expensive perfume on Jesus, would be giving her high fives and standing ovation and like, oh, I wish I would have thought about that. But instead, as you can see, they had extravagant disgust. Verse 4 and 5 mentions they were scolding her. 
That word scolding in the original language was used to describe what a horse does when it... <laughs> should I do it? <laughs> like, it, it's, it's, it's angry, it's frustrated, it's letting out a snort. That's what the disciples were doing, those around the table, as they watched this woman do this. I'm trying to think of an equivalent. I couldn't really come up with one. Maybe it'd be like this. If someone presented Calvary with a million dollars today and said, use it however you want. And the staff here at Calvary said, we have a great idea. We're going to go rent an airplane and get one of those banners and just fly it around for a million dollars for the day. And maybe the person giving that money or you in the seats would be like, ah, there's so many better ways you could have used that money. This is what the disciples were thinking. There's so many other things you could have done with that money, but the one person who mattered responded with this. Look at verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. That word in the original language, that good, is actually the word beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And then Jesus in verse 7 quotes Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For the poor will never cease to be with you in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. Jesus quotes the first part of Deuteronomy 15. But then he says, But what she has done is good and beautiful. So in this way, Jesus places himself above the needs of the poor. Who could do this? If Jesus wasn't God, this would be an evil, bad, crazy thing to say. Don't take care of the poor. Take care of me. But if Jesus was God, then truly you could say that this was a good and beautiful thing, that Jesus is God is the ultimate treasure. And a little side note as the outreach pastor here at Calvary. So I always want to remind us that we're called to love our neighbors and we have some amazing projects that we're planning to help us as a church love our neighbors. But loving God always precedes loving your neighbor. Otherwise, we'll burn out quickly. We'll get compassion fatigue. We won't truly love anyone well. So we love God first, and then out of that, he gives us opportunities to love our neighbors. Jesus elevates himself above the poor. And then in verse 8, he points to the extravagant, extravagant love that he is willing to pour out. The woman poured out perfume. Jesus, going to the cross, is about to pour out his body. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Do you see the prophetic news that Jesus is giving here? He already knows that he's going to the cross. You see, there was a custom that when a king would be inaugurated, they would pour oil over him to anoint him for ministry, for leadership uh, in the kingdom. Jesus never received that. Instead, Jesus' anointing came for his burial. You see, Jesus entered our world with a purpose and a plan. And that was not to gather a bunch of fame, popularity, or riches. Instead, it was to go to the cross, to pour out his life for you and I. Is it a sacrifice to make Jesus our treasure? Yeah. But it pales in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. 
I love this quote from C.T. Studd. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If you know his story, C.T. Studd was a millionaire in the 1800s. His family was millionaires. He was an outstanding cricket player. So it would be like LeBron James retiring from basketball and going to be a missionary in Afghanistan. C.T. Studd retired from cricket, left his family fortune, and became a missionary in China and India. That quote then has some weight to it, doesn't it? No sacrifice we can make for the Lord ever compels in comparison to what he has done for us. So Jesus says, this woman's story will be told for generations to come. Her story will be made known. Mark doesn't even mention her name because it's not about the woman, but it's about the heart that she brings to Jesus. Kind of cool to think that here in 2019, in January, we're mentioning this story. So in a sense, we're fulfilling the prophecy of Mark 14, that this woman's story will be made known. Verse 9 goes on to say that the gospel will go to the whole world. Jesus prophetically saying that my pouring out for people, my death, sacrifice on the cross, and and ultimate resurrection will be made known throughout the world. Last weekend, I got to be with some Iranian pastors who have suffered extreme ways for being Christians in Iran. And yet they count it as worthy. Worthy for the king, the savior that they follow, Jesus Christ. The word is going out. The good news of Jesus is going out to Iran, to Venezuela, to Spain, to the ends of the earth. This good news is being preached. So wholehearted worship is worth it. It's not wasteful. It's worth it. I love, I love the words from this hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross, where the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So where are you at? Let me turn the camera to your heart. Where are you at this morning? Is Jesus your treasure? Is he your greatest value, your greatest worth? A guy named Arthur Andrews said that Really, you have four assessments of the worth of Jesus. Either he's a liability, like the Pharisees said, let's kill him. He's marketable, let's, let's earn some keep off of him. He's measurable, let's follow him, but let's not give him too much. Or Jesus is priceless. Let's worship him with sacrificial generosity, extravagant devotion, and reckless abandonment. So how is your heart currently assessing the worth of Jesus. Let me tell one last story. Uh, Our family has Disneyland passes this year, and our youngest daughter is three, and her favorite ride at Disneyland is the monorail. (laughs) And really, she'd be totally content with just riding the monorail. If we went to Disneyland and just jumped on the monorail and went around about 45 times... That's a good day for her at Disneyland. But Marie and I and the other siblings have been telling her, like, Eden, there's so much more at Disneyland than the monorail. 
Once you get off the monorail, you can go on so many different rides. You're going to love it. There's so much creativity and fun. Like, just get off the monorail. Go into Disneyland. Then you'll really experience all that Disneyland has to offer. And I feel like if you can follow me here, this is kind of our lives. Many of us, when it comes to the treasure of Jesus in our lives, to giving him our whole lives, are kind of like the monorail rider. Like, oh, we'll be on the outside. We'll kind of lean in every once in a while and look out the window, but I'm just content to kind of just ride around Jesus. Where I think God is saying, I have so much more for you. It may not look like all of a sudden you end up in Mali, Africa, although maybe it will. But what does it look like to be all in with Jesus? To say he's not just a good man, but he is the God-man. He is my Savior, my Lord, my treasure, and I will give him my whole life. I am all in. I want us to pray for a moment, invite the Holy Spirit to show us what that looks like for each of us. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to hear your word. But God, I pray that we wouldn't just hear it and smile and walk away. But Spirit of God, would you challenge our hearts right now? Where are the places in our lives that we're holding back from you? Show those places right now, Lord, by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to see that treasuring you, making you our worth, is the best possible way to live. God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. And thank you that you are a God of extravagant, extravagant love. We commit our lives to you once again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to respond in worship now through music. We're going to respond in offering. Can't think of a better way to give your life all in than to give of your finances. We also have communion at different spots in the room. Encourage you, if you feel led, to come up and take the elements. They represent the body and blood of Jesus poured out for you. Remember that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. And there's time to pray over here to the sides too. We'd love to pray with you. If there's something specifically that you want to surrender to God and you want a fellow Christian to pray with you, or if you want to make Jesus your treasure for the first time, come see us on the sides. So let me pray for our offering and then we'll respond in these ways. Father, thank you for this chance to respond to your good news. Prompt us to be generous with our finances, with our hearts, with our lives. In the name of